lovemytummy.com, lovemytummy.com. Why am I saying this? Living low carb is a choice you are making because you care about your health and you love your tummy. But sometimes even the best choices in the food we eat will still lead to times when you find yourself feeling bloated or having that heavy feeling after a meal and you just don't know what to do. Diet changes, probiotics, and even medications are helping some, but you can't find real relief. Well, let me introduce you to Atrantil developed by a board-certified gastroenterologist to naturally address issues such as bloating, SIBO, IBS, leaky gut, and improve and protect cellular digestive health. Atrantil is all-natural, over-the-counter, works within the bowel, is very well-tolerated, and has no known drug interactions. Published clinical trials have shown that better than four out of five people that suffer from digestive symptoms will find relief with Atrantil. Backed by a 100% money-back guarantee. So love yourself, love your health, and visit lovemytummy.com. Be sure to use the coupon code JIMMY for 15% off of your order. Even the name is proven to make you feel better. Atrantil. The August 2017 special at KetoLiving.com is buy one, get one free off of the Omega 1250 pharmaceutical grade. It's one of our brand new products at the Keto Living line, and we're really excited to give you this opportunity to get a second bottle for free. Keto Living is a full line of ketogenic friendly products that will enhance your low carb, high fat, ketogenic lifestyle. We have the Keto Essentials multivitamin. We also have a blood sugar lowering vitamin called Berberine Plus and so much more. So check it all out, you guys, at KetoLiving.com. Coming up in episode 1307, an LLVLC classic with Dr. Natisse Karazia. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcasting Jimmy Moore Hey, hey, guys, we're back here with yet another Live and La Vida Low Carb Show classic episode for you today. Many of these shows are no longer on iTunes, and so a creative way to get them back on iTunes is to air these on brand new episodes for you guys. So today's episode is with Dr. Detise Karazian. Now, if you're not familiar with Detise's work, he is one of the leading voices in the functional medicine movement. And he is such an expert when it comes to thyroid health, autoimmune disease, and brain issues. And so he's been out there doing his thing for many years and teaching other functional medicine practitioners, such as my Keto Talk co-host, Dr. Will Cole. He actually learned under uh, Detise Karazian as well. So enjoy this LLVLC show classic episode with Dr. Detise Karazian. Welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And you know what? A lot of you guys have written to me and said, 
Jimmy, you've got to get somebody on your show to talk about thyroid. We hear so much conflicting information out there. You need to do this. You need to do that. All your lab tests are normal, and, and yet I'm still having issues. What's going on? I need, I need an expert that really knows his stuff. Well, today we have one such expert. His name is Dr. Datis Karazian. Did I say that right? Yes, Karazian. That's right, Karazian. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so glad to have you today, Dr. Karazian. He teaches more than 50 seminars nationally and internationally to healthcare practitioners. He has published numerous professional papers, several clinical manuals, and over 30 educational CDs. In other words, this guy knows his stuff. He's pulled together all this extensive research and clinical experience to provide a revolutionary breakthrough in the support of low thyroid function. He has taught thousands of doctors how to successfully use these methods, and he's written a book entitled, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal? He has a private practice in San Diego, California, and he's here today on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the healthcare industry. Um, what was it that drew you to want to practice medicine? Well, actually, I practice natural health care, and okay. what happened with me was um, I, when I was uh, younger, I had a back injury, and, and no one was helping me. I went to a chiropractor, and he helped me, so I decided that was great, and I wanted to be a chiropractor. And then when I started my chiropractic practice, uh, I was doing a lot of nutrition, and uh, I was seeing so many people that just weren't being helped pharmaceutically, being helped with nutrition, so my interest grew, and then I went back to school and got my master's degree in human nutrition, and then as I got more interested in natural medicine, I, I kept seeing the discrepancies of what was being done with patients in the healthcare model and the options that were available alternatively. So I then pursued a, a doctor of health science so I can understand health science research more and learn about statistics and study designs. And and after that, I got my master's degree in, in neuroscience. And one of the things that was very obvious to me is once I learned to evaluate research and look at the healthcare system, there is definitely a mismatch between research that was being published about things related to thyroid and other types of health conditions and what was actually being done from a pharmaceutical level and the options that were available from a natural medicine model. And it was, it was very clear that we, we don't really have an evidence-based model, that we really do have this, this pharmaceutical influence model. And, and that really led the interest into all types of areas. And the thyroid was something that just I, I got interested in uh, because so many of the people I was working with had thyroid disorders taking thyroid replacement but still having every single symptom. Right. Wouldn't you agree the whole pharmaceutical model pretty much dominates the entire healthcare industry? Yes, it does. And, and you know, one of the things that anyone can do is that they can go to different web pages that, that, that explain the top 50 prescribed drugs, and you can just Google that. And if you actually look at the mechanism of the top 50 most prescribed drugs, you'll see that the drug is there to really either downregulate, block, or inhibit a physiological system. Right. So we have things like beta blockers, HMG co-reductase inhibitors, protein pump inhibitors, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. It becomes very clear that the current model, the tools that are being used for patients are these agents that actually shut down the body. Yeah. 
and that's one of the big differences between, I think, natural medicine and, and pharmaceutical. I mean, natural medicine and the pharmaceutical model is because in natural medicine, you're trying to upregulate, enhance function, and then the pharmaceutical model, you're trying to shut down. Plus, we have this very simple, single symptom, single drug, or single diagnosis, single drug model, and yeah. this whole complexity of this picture doesn't really get accounted for, and this is especially true with, with individuals that have the thyroid and, and metabolic disorders. And it's disheartening that the natural food solution sometimes for people is teetotally ignored. It's, it's completely ignored. There's really very little training in uh, in conventional medical programs for nutrition and diet. And you know, when you, t- when you talk to the average physician, they just they just don't have a clue about uh, anything published in in uh, natural medicine in journals that are related to natural medicine. They have no clue with with dietary intake. And unfortunately, when when they're clueless, they make it seem like there's no research or evidence on the material, and that's yeah. just not that's not the fact. Do you see that changing anytime anytime soon with uh, doctors? Doctors realizing, hey, something's not working about this system with, with the drugs that we're prescribing. We're having to prescribe drugs to cover up the side effects of that other drug, and it, it just—it seems like there's got to be a breaking point at some point. Well, I think what we're seeing is uh, every year we're seeing that people are spending more money for alternative medicine than conventional medicine. This has been a trend for the past five years. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the public is just uh, more educated now than ever before. Sure. And the fact that this person wearing a white coat having all the answers is no longer accepted. People are doing their own research and, and, and they're demanding more. Now, in the healthcare system, if someone's in an HMO model, um, you know, it's very unlikely anything will change because they set standards and care. But in private practice, and what, what people are demanding is, is, is changing health care. And, and at some point, there's going to be practitioners that are dinosaurs that people are just going not going to go to and then yeah. there's going to be those that are more involved but the other hand is it's just not it's not just that the medicine has to change it's that the the public is is happy with trying to take one single pill to fix everything right and and i, I don't see a big change in the healthcare system because uh in general uh, the average the average person uh is looking for a simple solution without doing dietary and lifestyle change to to fix their health problems right yeah, unfortunately, we do live in that kind of culture where people want a pill to fix them rather than doing the due diligence of uh, of making lifestyle changes that are important for their health. That's right. So I, I, I don't see. My, I personally don't predict much change, not because of the healthcare system, but because of, uh, of the people's mindset of trying to take one single pill to fix their, you know, fix everything. Well, we're doing our best to try to help change that mindset with this show and uh, some of the other uh, podcasts and blogs and things out there that are really educating people that there are alternative solutions to their health problems besides that statin drug to lower their cholesterol, quote unquote, lower their cholesterol, and those kinds of things. Um, Definitely, there are alternatives available if people have their eyes open to them. Absolutely, and, and those type of people that are looking for that information will be the ones that will will find your your show and and, and you know find uh, uh, the things that we all do, and, and that's great. You know, so the people that are in search for it, there's solutions for, and the people that want the single pill, and they'll just be stuck in the healthcare system doing what they do and feeling the way they do. So it's it's all going to you know impact people that are ready for it and people that aren't ready for it will just be stuck in the system. I just think there's more people that aren't ready for the 
the change in there and people that are. Sure, sure. Well, uh, you actually are doing something about it uh, with your book, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal? You have an accompanying website with that. If people are interested in checking it out, it's thyroidbook.com. And when you go there, you can see all about uh, this book and lots of resources uh, from Dr. Karazian. And uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, let's just dive right into thyroid because it's it's talked about a lot people say oh i have a bad thyroid and so that's why i can't lose weight tell us what the thyroid is and what its function is supposed to be a thyroid gland is a gland that's in front of the incident in your neck and it's really involved with making a hormone called t3 and a hormone called t4 mm-hmm. and these hormones are there to increase the metabolic rate and the metabolic rate is really important because it's what you need to let's say burn body fat or have energy and have your cells function and a lot of people have thyroid disorders where they are diagnosed hypothyroid so at some point they have depression they have weight loss uh, I mean they have inability to have weight loss they have hair loss and uh, they go and see the doctor and they may get the diagnosis of, of hypothyroid what people don't know very well and with, the, with this not being really promoted in the healthcare system is that the etiology, the mechanism for why people actually develop the thyroid disorder is actually an autoimmune response. And the literature is very clear with this, about 90% or more of people that have a thyroid disorder really have an autoimmune disease. And these people have antibodies that are, that are obviously seen with laboratory tests for their thyroid. Now, in the current healthcare model, they don't check the thyroid antibodies, all they do is put uh, these individuals on thyroid hormones and they're just diagnosed hypothyroid. And they do this because the antibody testing, whether it's positive or negative, doesn't change their treatment. All they would be given is thyroid hormones for the rest of their life. Uh, But if the antibodies were checked, then it would be very clear that they have an autoimmune disease. And and unfortunately, when people have this, this, this autoimmune disease, it's actually what's called Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Mm-hmm. And when, when they're taking a replacement, it doesn't, just, doesn't have much of an effect for them because one of the things that's been clearly published is when people have this autoimmune disease, the autoimmune reaction is creating this inflammatory immune response. And these, these proteins called cytokines are elevated, and these cytokines make these thyroid receptor sites not respond to thyroid hormones. So despite the fact they're taking thyroid hormones, they're not getting a thyroid receptor side effect, so they're not changing their metabolic rate. That's why you have these individuals that are diagnosed hypothyroid taking thyroid hormones, and they still have difficulty with weight loss. They still have depression. They still have every single symptom. But on lab work, it looks like they have thyroid hormones in their bloodstream, but the autoimmunity itself is now allowing these thyroid hormones to be expressed. And this is why there's just so much frustration with thyroid patients because uh, they've been diagnosed they're hoping that since they're taking thyroid hormones that all their symptoms would go away but it doesn't and part of the problem with this is the autoimmunity is not being identified and, and there really is no uh, pharmaceutical options for, for these individuals uh, meaning that when you look at autoimmune disease from a conventional model the, the first line of therapy are steroids like uh, prednisone mm-hmm. corticosteroids and, and from a cost benefit ratio is established that thyroid patients should not be on corticosteroids because it's too the, the the adverse effects of it are not worth the benefits and the way they would manage this condition is just to give them thyroid hormones over time and one of the things that takes place with thyroid patients is they have to have their thyroid 
monitored every six months to a year. Mm-hmm. And, and most patients don't understand why. And the reason why is because their immune system is, is predicted to destroy their thyroid gland more and more every year, every six months. So there's constantly trying to play this catch-up game of trying to give them replacement uh, to compensate for the thyroid destruction that's going to take place over time and time. They're not doing anything for the autoimmunity because steroids are too adverse for them. And then the autoimmunity is making these thyroid receptor sites not respond. So unfortunately, these people have uh, no benefits and there's nothing being done for the, the mechanism of the condition from a conventional model. And this is where alternative medicine really shines because we can do a lot of things to modulate uh, the autoimmunity and, and the things that are triggering uh, the thyroid disorder uh, that can really make some major improvements in people's health. And this is what we cover in, in the book. Sure. So if somebody, uh, and, and I've got to admit, most people probably don't know that they have a, a thyroid issue. Um, what are some of the signs that they need to be on the lookout for? Well, it's, it's people that have thyroid disorders, <clears throat> depends on what stage they have the disorder, but the first thing I think people will notice is they just don't have uh, the zest that they used to when they get out of bed and they start getting to the day. They just get fatigued sooner. They have depression. They start having hair loss. They, they exercise, but they, they, they can't lose weight. They, they get constipation. Sometimes they get morning uh, headaches. Uh, they have hair thinning. Those are the most typical, those are the most common signs you'll see as someone starts to become hypothyroid. Now, when people start becoming hypothyroid, the autoimmunity usually is, is what's turned on. They start attacking their thyroid. And in the initial stages of hypothyroidism, um, their, their thyroid lab testing may not be obvious. And one of the things that they do conventionally to identify a hypothyroid condition is they look at this laboratory marker called, called thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH. And if the TSH is elevated, they're diagnosed hypothyroid. Well, in the early stages, the TSH will fluctuate. So in a few days, it'll show hypothyroid uh, patterns, and then a few days it won't. And then it'll show hypothyroid and it won't. But the antibodies are positive. So one of the things that uh, that that's recommended for individuals that are having these symptoms that may have not have had their thyroid checked, but they're told nothing is, is, is wrong with their thyroid, is to really request and have their thyroid antibodies checked. And there's two antibodies. One's called TPO antibody, mm-hmm. uh, and the other one is called thyroglobin antibody. So those need to be checked. Now, it's, it's sometimes difficult to get uh, a conventional practitioner to run these tests, uh, especially in an HMO setting, um, but those are the things that would be ideal to check. And if that's there, the literature is very clear that these people will have thyroid failure in the future and that it is a, an autoimmune reaction and it will turn into a, a thyroid disorder. So what's this business about taking your temperature for testing uh, how your thyroid is functioning and getting the temperature up? Is there any merit to that? Well, this is something, uh, the, the temperature testing was something that was uh, first put together by Dr. Barnes back in 1976, and it truly is an outdated concept, and a lot of people are still stuck in 1976, a lot of healthcare <laughs> practitioners are still stuck there, and we know that the temperature can change from, from many things, it can change from anemia, it can change from progesterone deficiencies, it can change from testosterone deficiencies, so one of the things is, you know, back in 1976, there really weren't good laboratory testing, there wasn't efficient ways to test these things, and 
and that was one of the the better ways to to evaluate a thyroid rate. Now we know that we have uh, great lab testing. We have the ability to check uh, several different thyroid markers, and then uh, we can really look at these things without having to deal with this this temperature issue. And uh, ranges, we you know, with thyroids differ. There is no acceptance of what uh, TSH should be. Meaning, if you look at the standards from the American Thyroid Association or the Endocrine Society or the American Family Family Physicians, you'll see that the TSH levels are all different. Some people say it should be uh, about five to be hypothyroid. Some will say it's uh, 4.0. Some will say it's 3.5. Um, so one of the things that uh, that we've done in the book is we, we talk about the, the, the lower ranges, the functional ranges, the tighter ranges. You'll see this stuff. And, and typically, if you look at someone with a very good functional tight range for hypothyroid, you can identify these things very quickly. You don't really have to resort to a, a temperature testing model, which right. can really be so many other things than just thyroid. Exactly. Right. Well, I am looking at a hormone evaluation that I had of my thyroid function. I did this just for kicks, uh, knowing I would be uh, interviewed by you, <laughs> interviewing you. And uh, I took a look at the, the test results, and I'm all within the normal range. Free T4 uh, was 1.4, free T3 was 4.6, TSH 1.3, and TPO uh, was 6. Um, by all intents and purposes, I've been told that's pretty spectacular for thyroid function, um, all of those numbers. And yet I have a lot of those symptoms that you talked about earlier um, regarding a poor thyroid function. So w- what do you say to somebody who comes back with a t- test results like that that are seemingly great and yet still having those symptoms? Well, a couple things. I don't think you've had all the markers checked. You, okay. you should have had thyroglobin checked. You should have had reverse T3 checked. Uh, those sometimes show these. We also know that thyroid antibodies fluctuate mm-hmm. with autoimmunity in the early stages, so sometimes we have to check those again. But there's also uh, one of the biggest mimickers of hypothyroid symptoms exactly is uh, metabolic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And metabolic syndrome is basically, you know, related to the topic that, uh, you know, your, your following has a lot of interest in, which is this whole insulin, blood sugar type of mechanism. Right. So we know that, in, especially in females, when they have um, insulin resistance and they have too much carbohydrates and not enough physical activity in their diet, that they get these insulin surges. And these insulin surges in a female stimulate the fecal cells of the ovaries to put out testosterone. And when a female has this insulin testosterone activity, they actually have hair loss, inability to lose weight, and depression. It's every single symptom of hypothyroid. So they're not they're not hypothyroid. With a male, it's it's a little bit different, but but the same kind of uh, uh, basic concept here. They have an insulin surge, but with males, the insulin surges increase their estrogen levels. There's an enzyme called aromatase. So as, as men get insulin surges, they start converting their testosterone to estrogen. And when men start converting their testosterone to estrogen, they also have hypothyroid symptoms. Mm. So if we see a person that comes in and they have every single hypothyroid symptom and we're just not seeing anything there, then there's a possibility that they have this blood sugar type of disorder. And uh, then we look at those types of markers. So looking at fasting glucose and triglycerides, estrogen levels in a, in a male, testosterone levels in a female can sometimes be the clue of why they may have these symptoms that may look like thyroid but in fact aren't thyroid. Mm. Yeah, I was really interested on page 98 of your book where you talked about 
hypoglycemia being linked to all forms of hypothyroidism. I didn't really think about that before, but you, you explain it very well and the symptoms to look for. Um, why is that? Okay, well, there's uh, when you look at the blood sugar component to thyroid disorders, there's the two aspects here. One is just what we, lot, what we just talked about, which is there's people that have blood sugar disorders, and because of their blood sugar disorders, they can have these testosterone surges if they're females, estrogen surges if they're males, and have all the same symptoms. But then there's a whole other aspect to this, which are people that are confirmed hypothyroid and have Hashimoto's. And when individuals have this autoimmune reaction against their thyroid, again, which is number one cause for being hypothyroid, uh, when they get insulin surges, the insulin surge itself has been shown to be a trigger for the autoimmune attack. So when a person's hypoglycemic and their blood sugar levels drop and they get shaky, lightheaded, and irritable, there's two hormones that are released. One's cortisol uh, and the other one's insulin. And these hormones are there to try to get their blood sugar back to normal. But the insulin surge itself then triggers the autoimmune attack. And other individuals are on the high blood sugar side when they eat a meal and they have too much carbs and they fatigue and they're about to pass out mm-hmm. or need some coffee to, to get through the day. They're also getting insulin surges and those insulin surges, again, stimulate the thyroid. So one of the things I usually uh, do with the patients I work with is I tell them if they have a hypo- Hashimoto's hypothyroid and if they're hypoglycemic, I say, listen, every time you get shaky, lightheaded, and irritable, you're, you're promoting an autoimmune reaction. You're going to lose part of your thyroid gland and, and you're never going to get it back. Mm. And, if, and if they're insulin resistant uh, and they fatigue after meals, they tell them, listen, every time you eat a meal and you, you, you fatigue and pass out, you're, you're really promoting your autoimmune attack and you're going to have some uh, long-term effects with this. And if you're doing this every single meal, every single day, it's going to really deteriorate your, your, your thyroid because you're promoting the autoimmunity. So the blood sugar disorder itself can be one of the triggers that, that stimulates the, the activation of the, the Hashimoto's uh, immune response. Right. Okay, so from a dietary perspective, I I was looking through like pages 104 through uh, 110 or so. Uh, It looks like you you put out uh, a a lot of good information for people that are interested in not only controlling uh, the the thyroid function issues, but also the hyperinsulinemia, uh, hypoglycemia, insulin resistance. Tell us a little bit about the diet plan that you're helping people with. Okay, so one of the things that we always try to do when we see a thyroid disorder is one of the battles is we have to decrease the triggers that have been shown to cause the autoimmune reaction to flare up. And from a dietary perspective, there's two main things. One of them is there's a strong association between thyroid disorders, Hashimoto's uh, thyroid disorders, and gluten intolerance. So a lot of these individuals have gluten intolerance. Mm-hmm. And we know that the gene type, the HLA-DQ genotype number two and eight, is very commonly associated with thyroid disorder. So the most common cross-antibody that people will have when they have a thyroid disorder are gluten antibodies or transglutaminase antibodies. And this gluten exposure really promotes the, the autoimmune attack very, very severely. And there's been paper after paper after paper published um, that really shows that people that have thyroid disorders, if they eat gluten, that their autoimmunity is promoted. And when they become gluten-free, that they, they see a resolution of their symptoms and lab markers dramatically improve. And in, in the book itself, I think I have uh, close to six, 700 uh, peer-reviewed references just to make sure that uh, I didn't want the book to be an opinion. I just wanted the, the book to be uh, a, a compilation of all the research that we use clinically and, and ways that patients can or people that are reading the book can, can find use for it. Yeah, so it's well-resourced. Good job. 
think so. The gluten, the gluten component is one of the was is one of the dietary things, and and that's important to us because it's not just that they're eating too much carbs, but it's the fact they're having any carbs. And in a sense, when with carbs, I don't mean the starch aspect of it, but the the, the gluteadin aspect of it, the the protein uh, response in in, in wheat, uh, oats, rye, barley, kamut, spelt, that has been shown to be a trigger for this. So we we look at these individuals that have thyroid disorders and go, okay, you can't have gluten. And then the second thing is we have to stabilize their blood sugar. Mm. So when they come in, uh, usually when you look at uh, people that have thyroid disorders, you you look at them and see what their body composition is. And usually if you see that they're overweight, they tend to be more on the insulin resistant side and they're the ones that usually fatigue after meals and the glucose is uh, a little bit higher than normal. You know, the normal range we use is above 100 and heading towards diabetes, which is the overweight ones. Uh, the people that have thyroid disorders that are not overweight, that are normal weight, typically are the ones that are hypoglycemic. Mm. They're the ones that get shaky, lightheaded, and irritable, and have to eat. And one of the easiest ways to to distinguish whether someone's hypoglycemic or insulin resistant is when you is when we do a history on them. It's just to see how they feel after they eat. If they eat a meal and they get tired and fatigued, we know they're insulin resistant. If they eat a meal and they feel normal and they, they can function again, we know that they're hypoglycemic. What's normal for a person after they eat a meal is there's no change in energy and they just feel like they're not hungry anymore. And I got to tell you, working with thyroid patients, uh, I've never, I have not to this day seen a, a hypothyroid patient that didn't have a blood sugar component to their case. Mm-hmm. So there is this blood sugar component to the case. Now, if they're insulin resistant and they fatigue after meals, then, you know, the goal is to cut down on, um, you know, their starch intake and have them do physical activity and, and limit their carbohydrates to, to make it very simple. And if they're hypoglycemic, then the goal is to have them eat more frequently and have them have more of a, a protein-rich source throughout the day than a sugar-rich source, a simple sugar source throughout the day. Um, it makes sure they don't have big gaps between meals. So if we can get them off gluten, stabilize their blood sugar, there's a decrease in the autoimmune reaction against their their thyroid, and then they start to to start to, to feel better. Yeah, yeah, I, I love the the suggestion on page 105 where you say find your carbohydrate tolerance and stick to it. Here is one simple rule: if you feel sleepy or crave sugar after you're done eating, you know what? You've eaten way too many carbohydrates. <laughs> That's right. One of the things you know we don't do is we don't give people like a, a uh, dietary <laughs> suggestion for how much carbohydrates they should eat uh, mm-hmm. because everyone's different. Everyone has their own degree of insulin resistance, right. and uh, you know it's very clear. If you a person eats a meal, they get tired afterwards. Uh, they had t- they had too much of a load for their body, and uh, and they just have to work with that. And there's some individuals that uh, will cut down all their carbs and basically be on a lean protein vegetable diet and they still have fatigue after meals and those are sometimes the more uh, severe insulin resistance people. Mm-hmm. And for those people, we really have to push uh, nutrients that, that stimulate their insulin receptor sites, things like vanadium, alpha-lipoic acid, B vitamins, uh, inositol. Those things really get these receptor sites to respond and then we load them up on those things to the point where the fatigue after meal uh, goes away and once we start seeing that change, we'll start seeing the uh, glucose and triglycerides and lipid panels all start to, to normalize. Yeah, I was going to ask you about supplements, what what role they play in this whole equation with normalizing uh, uh, thyroid function. 
Well, when we look at um, supplementation, um, there isn't uh, like a specific nutrient that we use. And, and one of the issues that always comes up with the thyroid is there's just, there's just great uh, demand for practitioners and the public to use iodine to support their thyroid. Right. And for Hashimoto's people, it's actually been very clear that it, that it makes them worse. Really? And yes. Wow. And what we know is, and there's this paper after paper published on this. And I actually wrote an article on this for the webpage thyroidbook.com, mm-hmm. and and I listed all the research on this because usually when you tell people that, they just don't believe you. And you know, we we are really stuck in the 1960s model when we look at the thyroid. And maybe back in 1960, iodine deficiency and, and was one of the causes for thyroid disorders. But in 2010, autoimmunity is definitely the the main cause for thyroid. Disorders. And iodine uh, stimulates an enzyme in the thyroid called TPO. And TPO is what's used to, to make thyroid hormones. But with Hashimoto's, which is the most common cause for thyroid disorders, uh, the, the, the pathophysiology of the condition is that the immune system is actually attacking TPO. And it's very clear to see many people that go on iodine with thyroid disorders, they get, they get nervousness, they get anxiety, they get palpitations, they get thyroiditis, they get flare-ups. So iodine is really not the way to go with these, uh, these cases. And they're not hypothyroid because they're iodine deficient. They're hypothyroid because their immune system is attacking their thyroid. And, it, and it's really clear to, to see that with them. You, you know, you check their iodine levels; it's, it's fine. You, um, if people are iodine deficient as a cause of hypothyroidism, usually they have a goiter or an enlargement of their thyroid gland. They just don't have it today. Most people have thyroid just don't have a, a goiter or an enlargement. So, when it comes to like supplementation for the thyroid, the first thing we do is make sure they're not taking iodine because it tends to be something that really flares us up. And and there's several several studies on this. Um, I would say maybe 30, 40 studies on this now worldwide I've listed the major ones again on, on, on the thyroidbook.com there's a new letter section on, on past articles and then there's a few I mentioned in the book so we kind of look at the when I look at a, the nutritional approach the first thing we actually do isn't thinking about what supplements to give him is which supplements to exclude the other thing we do when it comes to exclusion of supplements is with autoimmune disorders, there's what's called a Th1 dominance or Th2 dominance. Right. There's two parts to the immune system. The Th1 part of the immune system is what attacks the foreign invaders, and the Th2 system is the part of the immune system that makes antibodies. And this is important to us because when people develop an autoimmune disease, they, they, they tend to have a dominance to either the Th1 side or the Th2 side. And this is critical because certain supplements stimulate the Th1 side and certain supplements stimulate the Th2 side. Things that are typically used for the common cold or flu, like echinacea and astragalus and mataki mushrooms, stimulate the Th1 side. Things that like are used as antioxidants, grapeseed extract, green tea extract, these types of things stimulate the Th2 side. So a lot of times you'll see people that have these, these chronic thyroid disorders out of desperation have all of these supplements they're trying to take and some of them are TH1 or TH2 stimulators that are actually making this condition worse. So from a nutritional perspective, the first thing uh, the, that I do is I, I try to see if they are getting exposed to triggers for the thyroid. So we look for TH1, TH2 based supplements. We look for iodine and then see if, if any of those are there. Now when it comes to nutrients that we give them, uh, the inclusion model versus the exclusion model, right. uh, these people uh, clearly have been shown to have vitamin D need. Yeah. And and vitamin D is really not a vitamin, it's a hormone. And it's a hormone that has very powerful effects on what are called regulatory T cells. 
And regulatory T cells are these T cells that modulate the immune system. They modulate the TH1, TH2 system. They modulate autoimmunity. And it's really the area that uh, is being looked at in the uh, pharmaceutical model to try to deal with autoimmune disease. They're trying to develop drugs to, to regulate, uh, stimulate the regulatory T cells. Vitamin D is a very powerful stimulator of regulatory T cells. And vitamin D deficiencies are, are really, really common. And we also know that about 90% of Hashimoto's people actually have a vitamin D receptor site polymorphism, or what that means is they have a gene uniqueness where they need more vitamin D than the average person. Yeah. And there's some immunologists that, that have theorized that there's the, the part of the, the genotype that makes a person susceptible to an autoimmune thyroid disorder is potentially the fact that they, they can't get the regulatory T-cell activity up because of their vitamin D polymorphisms. So a lot of times um, nutrients that are very helpful for uh, thyroid patients is, is vitamin D. We're talking about six to 10,000 IUs a day. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, these should be measured with a 25-hydroxy uh, vitamin D test right. and, and the levels we like to see them are between 50 and 100. Uh, the lab range is usually around. Uh, anything below 30 is considered low. Um, you know, so we like to get them above that range. Yeah. And, and that's very helpful for them. Now, nutrients, other nutrients that we typically use for thyroid disorders really depends on the, the mechanisms. So some of these individuals have hypoglycemia, so these individuals have insulin resistance. Um, some of these individuals have what's called uh, leaky gut syndrome. Some of these people have uh, infections. And so we try to use supplements that are specific for their Th1, Th2 system. We try to get the regulatory T cells up. We try to repair their intestinal lining. We try to stabilize their blood sugar. And we try to get them off the supplements that are promoting the, the flare-ups like the iodine or, or supporting their immune system the wrong way. And it seems to be very effective. Hmm. Yeah, I, I um, have become very interested in the whole vitamin D connection to health uh, over the past couple of years. Um, I measured my vitamin D level uh, two years ago. It was 42, which was what they would say in the good range between what 40 and 60 they say is good. Uh, but I had some issues, uh, various issues. So I thought, you know what, let's try taking the 10,000 IU of D3 gel caps a day. Because uh, I had interviewed somebody and he talked about that. So I tried it, and within six months, it went from 42 to 68. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or and, uh, and so I backed off a little bit from that for the next six months, uh, down to about five thousand IU a day, and it dropped again to fifty. So now I'm back up on ten thousand. It's finding that level, and 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 I, I appreciate hearing uh, you say that uh, some people are, have issues um, with getting enough vitamin D, where they have to have a higher dose than. I mean, the RDA of vitamin D is just woefully inept. Yeah, the RDA for vitamin D is for bone loss prevention for World War II soldiers. <laughs> that's that's what the RDA for vitamin D is. So, you know, if, that's that's oh not really what we need. We need we need a much higher level. And this has been so uh, uh, proven in the literature that we have gross vitamin D deficiencies all over the country, even even in, in areas where there's plenty of sunlight. My practice in, in sunny San Diego, we have yeah. severe vitamin D deficiencies here. And we know that it's just not sunlight exposure, but that people that have increased body fat, people that have severe stress, people that have uh, chronic inflammation, they can't utilize sunlight to make vitamin D. 
so a lot of people are, are having these mechanisms involved with their overall health so just being exposed to the sun is not enough yeah we also know that um, when you look at uh, how people are taught about vitamins and supplements they're very they're told to be very cautious of taking vitamins that are fat soluble like vitamin D and not to overdose and they can be they can be serious health problems and one of the things we know is just it's just not accurate with with vitamin D and vitamin A and that people can really take high levels and and uh, the notion that this is dangerous is, is really being disproven and a lot of people need these higher doses and the RDAs are just not 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 really sufficient for for what what we see out there today right which is why the work that you're doing is so important because people need to hear the truth about uh, things like vitamin uh, D um, and the levels that are appropriate for them. So, Absolutely. Well, let's talk about your very unique fast uh, for unwinding insulin resistance. I think this will be uh, uh, acutely uh, and a great inter- of great interest to m- this audience. Um, this really intrigued me, Dr. Karasian, sure. um, the, the fast. Tell us the purpose of the fast and how does it help with unwinding insulin resistance? Okay. Well, if we look at the insulin resistance, insulin resistance um, was first called prediabetes. And the individuals that had uh, glucose levels that were starting to be elevated were, were told they had prediabetes. And then later on, they changed the name to Syndrome X mm-hmm. because they realized that people that had these uh, elevated glucose levels had a severe cardiovascular risk and they started to see this connection and they called it Syndrome X. Um, and then now it's no longer called uh, pre-diabetes or, insulin, or syndrome X, it's really referred to as metabolic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, and metabolic syndrome is, is really a syndrome because we know that when people have elevated blood sugar levels, that their entire neuroendocrine immune axis is involved. So several things take place um, with with this whole metabolic syndrome that you know or, or insulin resistance pattern. And one of them is that as individuals have their insulin levels go up, their cortisol levels go up. And as the cortisol levels go up, that promotes further insulin resistance. And then as they get insulin resistance, they get greater insulin surges, which then stimulates them to produce more cortisol. Insulin is a stimulant for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So they get one vicious cycle, which is this insulin cortisol vicious cycle. Okay, and what what happens is they have several vicious cycles, and then the other things that happen is, is like, well, like we mentioned earlier, is these insulin surges in men stimulate the enzyme aromatase, so they convert testosterone into estrogen uh, in males, and then in females, these insulin surges stimulate uh, 17-20 lyase, which converts their uh, hormones into testosterone, their, their pre-existing DHEA into uh, testosterone. So females get these insulin resistance surges with high testosterone and males get with, with high estrogen. And we also know that when a female gets high testosterone, that actually creates insulin resistance. And when a male gets high estrogen, that actually creates insulin resistance. So then they get this another vicious cycle. They have these hormonal uh, surges creating insulin resistance. They have the cortisol creating insulin surges. And the other thing that we know is that when individuals have these high cortisol and insulin levels, that there's a cytokine called interleukin-6 that's that's released. And and this makes them have their... um, pH2 system become overzealous, which makes them have their antibody system become overzealous, so they start developing food sensitivities. 
and uh, we this is part of the whole pathophysiology of metabolic syndrome. And the other thing that we know is uh, that individuals that have the, the, the whole metabolic syndrome, these cortisol surges, their inflammatory cascade um, creates what's called a leaky gut, where they have a, a intestinal permeability problem that that their tight junctions in their intestinal tract are no longer there, and and food particles that shouldn't go through the intestinal cells go through, and this creates a, an immune inflammatory response. So if we take a look at insulin resistance, we can't look at it and go, well, they just need chromium. Uh, they just need to cut down on carbs. That there's really this, this vicious cycle, this vicious syndrome that's taking place. That they have these hormonal issues that are being promoted by insulin, which is then creating more insulin resistance with the cortisol, testosterone, estrogen. Their insulin surges are, are having impacts on the immunity, so getting food sensitivities, their intestinal barriers being compromised. And the other thing that we know that takes place with these uh, insulin surge metabolic syndrome patterns is the fact that their insulin resistance, they can't get glucose into their cells and they can't make what's called glucuronic acid. This is a substrate in the liver that actually clears hormones. So they have all these hormones that are made and they can't clear it. So, you know, we take a step back and look at this and go, wow, this is really a complex syndrome and it's not related to a single nutrient deficiency. And a lot of people that have this, just going off carbs may not be uh, effective for them, even though it will be for a lot, but for some it won't. So what do we do to unwind this, this whole thing? And one of the first things we do is we put individuals on a, 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 a limeade fast. And that's basically they, they drink water. Uh, they make a mixture of water uh, with lemon lime juice, a little bit of maple syrup, and some green tea. And they make a couple gallons of this. And the key with this is they drink this every 10 to 15 minutes. And, and that's important. They, that's important. And if they go past the 10 to 15 minutes, like an hour or two, they actually go into a fasting state, which is adverse to their to their treatment. So every 10 to 15 minutes, uh, they, they just sip this all throughout the day, and we have them do this for like three to five days. And what that does is that simple sugar that they drink all day, every 10 to 15 minutes, uh, keeps their blood sugar level stable. That simple sugar then gets into the cell so they can get their glucuronic acid levels up so they can start clearing out their hormones. And now they're off all their inflammatory foods that their body's reacting to so their intestinal uh, tract can actually heal. So, so that, doesn't, that doesn't spike insulin levels? No. With a simple sugar that's it's given every 15 to 20 minutes mm-hmm. won't necessarily spike, spike it. It's really, the, it's really the immune reaction that's really been shown to spike the insulin uh, levels. Uh, people that have a greater histamine surge, for example, they start developing sensitivity to grains or to dairy. They, they get this huge surge. The, the amount of carbs they have can be significant, but a simple sugar uh, that's taken all throughout the day doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have that effect. And no cravings, uh, no cravings or hunger or anything like that? Well, I think people will get some hunger throughout the day, but as they get hungry, they, they just have to take big chugs of water out of their, yeah. out of their drink. And, and after about a day or so, they, they kind of get used to it. And, um, you know, usually the second or third day, people feel great. And a lot of people, even, even after three or five days, feel so good, they, they want to continue. So it's been it's been one of these things we we do just to kind of break this vicious cycle between these hormonal surges, the insulin surges, the intestinal response, the intestinal tract permeability, the immune response, and just wind them down. And you'll have a lot of people that uh, that do this that just 
you, you take a picture of them before and after, and it looks like they've been to Tahiti for three weeks. It looks like they're, yeah. they're younger, they're healthier, their inflammatory response has gone down. But the key thing with that is to take sips every 15 to 20 minutes. Right. Now, when they're sleeping or if they need to take a nap, it's no big deal because their metabolic demands are, are less. They don't need that constant supply. But a constant, simple, non-antigenic, non-anti-inflammatory uh, source of sugar all throughout the day seems to just dramatically wind down these individuals. Now, that works great for people that are insulin resistant to fatigue after meals. That doesn't work good for hypoglycemics. That mm. the one, you know, they, they actually crash when they do a fast like this. So oh, yeah. We only really recommend that for the insulin resistance people. Yeah, I have reactive hypoglycemia, and that, that sounds scary to me. <laughs> yeah, that might not be for you, yeah. <laughs> well, and then you transition them to a phase two, which is an anti-inflammatory diet, which also looks very familiar to the people who listen to this show. Can you tell us briefly about that? Well, in the second stage, that's the first stage we did for three to five days with a lightweight fast. Second stage, we, we put them on a diet that's just uh, uh, non-inflammatory. They avoid wheat, dairy, soy, eggs, nightshades. And then uh, we have them take support nutritionally to support the liver clearance, things like sulfur amino acids, B vitamins, um, different botanicals like mofos and all these things that just support the liver clearance pathways. And then at that point, we, we use supplements to really work on their insulin resistance. And like we mentioned earlier, chromium, B vitamin, and ostol, all these things. And that gets those receptor sites to start kicking in. And we, we use uh, some uh, botanicals that help modulate the cortisol release, things like ashwagandha, Rodalia, Brophia Diffuso, and all these things, you know, start, starting to be used in the second phase, start really getting uh, the suspicious cycle under control. And, uh, you know, that's the second phase. And the third phase, uh, it's really a, a provocation because a lot of people that have blood sugar-related issues and autoimmune disorders have multiple food sensitivities. And, and what we do in the third stage is that they've been avoiding all these inflammatory foods. And then we just have them introduce them back in their diet and see if they have any reaction to them. And it's very clear to see if they if they do when, they, when they've had uh, several weeks off from being exposed to the food, uh, the reaction becomes much clearer to see. And, and then we can see what foods they have to avoid for a period of time. Yeah, there were two things that you listed in phase two that I was very impressed with. Uh, as far as the things to avoid, you had, you know, obviously alcohol, soy, peanuts, e eggs, all the things that might be, uh, people might be allergic to. But one of the things that you listed was beef that is not grass fed. And I, and I think that's an important distinction. People are like, well, why should I have the higher quality of beef? Isn't beef just beef? And, and yet you put that in there um, as an important caveat. And then the other caveat that you put in there uh, was be mindful of your tolerance level for carbohydrates with hypoglycemia or insulin resistance when talking about fruits, vegetables, beans, and, and other uh, carbohydrate sources. So uh, good job at least recognizing that. Uh, too many books just throw those things in there and say eat away and yet it's not for everybody. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that's really common to see is that people that uh, they assume since they're, you know, they assume they're eating well just because they are not eating fast food all day. Right. And there's people that have severe blood sugar disorders that are eating organic, healthy foods all day, but they're eating too much sugar, they're eating too much fruit. They're not getting enough substantial protein or fiber in their diet. And and they have uh, they have their effects too. They have problems. You know, if someone's you know, drinking a huge fruit smoothie all day, 
they're going to have infrared surgeries and have blood sugar problems. So, you know, it is it is important to be mindful of of fatigue after meals. It's very important to be mindful of crashing in the afternoon or getting shaky, lightheaded, and herbal between meals because these are just signs that even though the the food may not be a fast food or it's considered a bad food. Uh, it's just having an impact on blood sugar stability. So that's, that's critical to, to, to evaluate uh, in, in these types of conditions. Yeah. Well, I only have one more question for you, and it has to do with the hormone, uh, thyroid hormone replacement prescription medicines that are out there. We really haven't touched on those yet. Sure. I know uh, arguably the most popular one, uh, there's two of them that are very popular. Uh, so was it Synthroid is the synthetic uh, thyroxine, and, was it T4, and yeah. then the Armour thyroid, which is desiccated pig thyroid, basically, um, uh, which is actually very hard to find. These these days, so for some reason, the manufacturer is having a, a, a battle right now, I guess, with the FDA over it. Um, but uh, tell us, uh, you know, are these appropriate medications for people to be taking? Well, let me answer this. Uh, and, and You know, the, the interesting thing is when people have a thyroid disorder, when, and you hear their histories, they all have a thyroid replacement story. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is they go on one type of replacement, they don't feel better, and they, they go on the search for the next one, and they go on the search for the next one, and they go mm-hmm. on the search for the next one. The most prescribed thyroid hormone today is levothyroxine, which is a uh, generic form of Synthroid, and it's the fourth most prescribed drug in the United States. So mm-hmm. it's really commonly prescribed. And so if you're in an HMO setting and, and they're trying to limit cost, you're usually given levothyroxine. If you're seeing a conventional healthcare practitioner, they, they'll probably, uh, that isn't on a uh, insurance plan, they'll probably give you Synthroid. And then what happens with people is they start with levothyroxine or Synthroid, then they hear all this buzz that, uh, well, you know, you're not actually taking bioidentical, that you should, you're not, you're not taking a T3 hormone because we know that they're given a T3 four hormone, but the body really needs T3 to, to have activity, so they start going on this uh, quest for the perfect thyroid hormone. And people that have a high TSH, that have a true hypothyroid disorder, they, they should be on thyroid hormones. But thyroid hormones alone aren't going to necessarily unwind their, their condition, because it's not dealing with the autoimmunity they have, and they're not dealing with things like the blood sugar issues and the gluten intolerance and the vitamin Ds that have been, been associated with this condition. So, you know, I'm definitely for thyroid hormone replacement therapy when people have a high TSH and hypothyroid. But uh, you'll see with people that are going through this disorder that they're on this quest to find the perfect thyroid hormone and there just isn't the perfect thyroid hormone. And a lot of people are in this mindset that armor is better or, or, or nature's droid or West, you know, West droid or these other things are better and that's just not true. Uh, one of the things that I did is I wrote a, a whole article on this and it's available on, on thyroidbook.com. It talks about different types of replacements. And the biggest issue that we see with people that have Hashimoto's, which is number one cause for hypothyroidism, is they're actually reacting to the fillers. And this is why they'll take one thyroid hormone and feel great and then take another one and then crash. Or they'll take a thyroid hormone and they just fall apart. And we know that there are uh, things like TH2 stimulators and some of these fillers. We know that some of these fillers actually contain gluten. 
Kaiser Storch as their base, so it actually triggers a reaction, and that there is really isn't a, uh, there's really a trial and error. And well, you know, you get these practitioners that become like, oh, I just our armor is all I use, I only use bioidentical, and that's not necessarily the best thing too, because one of the things we've seen with um, these autoimmune thyroid patients is that they actually attack their own T3 and T4 at times. Not only do they attack their own thyroid gland, but sometimes they actually attack their own thyroid hormones. Mm. And and those people don't don't do well with bioidentical. They actually do better with synthetic. So for me personally, I don't really have a preference for one or the other because I've just seen people change and there isn't one thing for it. And you brought this 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 point up with armor and what happened with armor recently is um the only thing that's been changed with armor is they change the fillers. Armor is is four point two two to one T four to T three. So they change these fillers for the for the armor, and if you read, read some of these thyroid blogs that are out there, you'll see these people that claim since they changed the fillers, they it's really become worse, and they take it, and they can't tolerate it anymore. Since they've changed armor, it's better than ever, and they feel much greater. And they haven't done anything to the actual hormones; they they've actually just changed the fillers. Wow. So one of the most ignored areas for the for patients that have thyroid problems is the fact that um, there's a filler issue and there's a sensitivity to the filler. And these things will obviously take place with this person who's got an autoimmune disease. If anyone has an autoimmune disease and their immune system is overzealous and they keep taking the same source every single day, their immune system starts reacting against it at a greater rate than, let's say, the average person. So they start getting sensitivity to the filler. Some have it from the very beginning. And the, and the point is, too, is, is when people fixate on the replacement, they're not really going on the underlying cause, which is this autoimmunity, because replacement doesn't do anything for the autoimmunity. And then the other thing that we know is when individuals uh, have this disorder, the autoimmune response itself is releasing cytokines. These cytokines are not allowing the thyroid receptor to respond. So a lot of times, despite what they take, they just don't feel better even though they still need to take it. Uh, and if they don't take it, they get severe bone loss, they get accelerated neurodegeneration, but their symptoms uh, like energy and, and weight loss and their hair coming back just doesn't improve until their inflammatory autoimmune response comes down. So the replacement battle isn't like, this is the best one you take it, because it's not, it's, it's not that. It's more complicated. And this is the frustration that I think uh, I have and uh, we try to portray in the book. You know, we're stuck in this world of looking at thyroid disorders with this actually temperature test. And then yeah. we give people iodine, which makes these people worse. And then there's this, this search for this perfect thyroid hormone that just doesn't exist for them. And the underlying cause is this autoimmunity. And the goal should be to decrease the things that are triggering it and, and, and increase the things that help modulate it. And, and this is what we've had great effects with. Now, I've, I've, uh, I've lectured all over the country and even internationally. And, and we've been teaching this model for the past uh, eight years. And we've trained thousands of practitioners um, all over. And we've had so many fantastic results. You know, the model we have definitely works. We've been able to help so many people. And, we've, you know, you can check out some of the reviews that people have given us on Amazon that have read the book, The F-Thyroid Disorders. And, you know, it's really changed a lot of lives. And the, the, the goal is right now to get the message out that please don't fixate on iodine. Please don't fixate on any specific thyroid hormone. That you really have an autoimmune reaction and you don't know it because all you've been diagnosed is hypothyroid. No one's really checked your antibodies. Check your antibodies. You will see it. And then try to modulate this thing through diet and lifestyle to get the autoimmunity down. 
Need a quick place to pick up some of your favorite keto foods like Primal Kitchen Mayo, Coconut Milk, Almond Butter, MCT Oil, and Sea Salt at the best prices possible? Then head on over to thrivemarket.com keto to fill your low-carb, high-fat needs all in one place. Thrive Market sells the very best ketogenic-friendly brands at wholesale prices, so you're not spending your whole paycheck to get what you really want. Because they work directly with their members and cut out the middlemen, they can pass on the very best savings to you. I love that they donate a complimentary membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher for each new member who joins the Thrive Market family. I've hand-selected 25 of my favorite low-carb, high-fat products that I think you're going to love, too. For you, my listeners, you'll get 25% off your first purchase, plus free shipping, plus a free 30-day trial of Thrive Market to see for yourself what an amazing way to shop keto this is. Don't forget, the prices are already 25 to 50% below retail, so you get these things as an added value. So go to thrivemarket.com keto to take advantage of this exclusive offer for fans of my podcast, Thrive Market. From the publisher who brought you best-selling books by Maria Emmerich, Leanne Vogel, and Jimmy Moore, comes the latest in the line of ketogenic books that are sure to rock the health community. It's called The Ketogenic Bible by Dr. Jacob Wilson and Ryan Lowry. It's the authoritative guide to ketosis, and it's now available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. The Ketogenic Bible. If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you? As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oils direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest-fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure, fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs! It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh yeah! I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time jimmyoliveoil.com. I'm glad we were able to work it out to get you on the show to talk about your new book. 
Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Fantastically thick book, so that's c- good job. We can always count on Datus Karazian to give us a, uh, I guess, a, a huge book to tell us everything we ever wanted to know about whatever subject. Um, so I'm glad to see you're, you've moved on a bit from the thyroid, although I know you're helping a lot of people still with that issue, but the brain health issue is uh, another biggie, so I'm glad you're tackling it. Yeah, you know, the uh, the brain is uh, one of the areas that is most overlooked, and you know, for me, I, I'm not uh, in particular into one area. I mean, I'm not uh, only focused on thyroid. The, the point is that when people become chronically ill, uh, one of the areas that's that's typically overlooked is the, the health of the brain. And when you look at the uh, most prescribed medications and you see antidepressants and, and um, many types of mood-altering types of medications in an attempt to try to get people to, to function better, that we know we have a problem. So yeah. in, the, in the current model, you know, we, we don't have anyone really looking at brain health because neurology is really designed for end-stage neurological disease diagnosis, and no one else does anything, including natural medicine practitioners. Although we are starting to see some bits and pieces, uh, a pretty major book just released called Grain Brain from a neurologist who is identifying, yeah. uh, you know, some of these issues that you talked about in your book. Um, so it's really encouraging well, to see that. Yeah, that book was uh, by David Perlmutter. He's yep. one of my functional medicine colleagues, and we just at a conference together speaking. He's just he's he's one of the special neurologists out there, and uh, you know, <laughs> the when few, I talk, the proud. He's he's very frustrated with his field as well. That's I mean, right. He's you know the the point is is there are exceptions. There are amazing people out there. He's one of them. And uh, but for the most part, the average human being that is not feeling well isn't functioning well. If they have any brain impairments, they really have very little hope. Yeah. So the reason I, I pick certain topics is really what what things are people not getting. So the reason I first wrote the thyroid book was because. Most people have thyroid disorders, and they're trying to treat it as a nutrient deficiency or just the single replacement model. But in fact, the mechanism is autoimmune. Unless you can handle the autoimmunity of it, you can't really, you can't really address it. Yeah. The other, the other major issue we have right now is we have an explosion of uh, brain degeneration issues. Right. We have one out of eight children that has autism or dyslexia or ADD of a, or some type of learning disorder, and we have absolutely nothing for it. Mm. And when we look at even the, 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 the key thing with this is early diagnosis. But there is no early diagnosis. There's just basically end-stage diagnosis. Yeah. But if a person has memory decline, if a person has... Uh, depression, if a person is not able to find words and is not able to focus, these are all clues that there's something wrong with the brain, you know? Right. And uh, that was the, the whole attempt with this. So it's it's a serious problem. And I know that uh, a lot of your listeners are are very much interested in carbohydrates and insulin, yeah. right? Yeah, and, 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 I, we, and I think the ketogenic diet, especially when it comes to brain health, is kind of getting a lot of attention, Um you know, in recent years, thanks to people like Dr. Perlmutter uh, and different yeah. other ones that are kind of saying, hey, you want that clarity of mind, cut the carbs. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things we know is just when people overeat carbohydrates, they, they get that brain fog and they want to crash. I mean, that's an ins- insulin-related mechanism that has immediate consequences on brain. That That's created an inflammatory cascade. Yeah. So when you have people who eat meals and they pass out and uh, they they can't uh, function afterwards, um, and the reason they can't function, you know, if you really think about it, they're not able to use their brain. 
they concentrate, think all they want to do is close their eyes. Yeah. There's an immediate attack on brain when people overeat uh, or have carbohydrate or insulin surges, and yeah. that that is something that gets overlooked. People don't realize if they've been doing that for years and years and years, they've had years and years and years of accelerated brain degeneration. Yeah. So now all of a sudden they can't find their way home or they, they need a navigation system work. They don't realize that they're in all those years of doing those dietary habits, they perpetuated Alzheimer's or other types of dementias. Yeah. Well, we've been sitting here just talking and we didn't really officially start the show, but I'm going to go ahead and officially start the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And we do have the great Dr. Datis Karazian on with us today. And he's got a brand new book out. It's called Why Isn't My Brain Working? A Revolutionary Understanding of Brain Decline and Effective Strategies to Recover Your Brain's Health. Now, you might recall Dr. Karazian was on way back in 382 to talk about his thyroid book, uh, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal. We did a special thyroid week that week. And uh, Dr. Karazian, I got to tell you, I appointed more people to that little podcast we did way back in 2010 uh, because people you know, were having frustrations with their thyroid and all the numbers would come back and were you know, really frustrated. So thank you so much for doing that resource. And it sounds like in recent years, you shifted focus just a bit to take a look at this brain health. What, what was it about brain health issues that you thought needed the attention that you gave to thyroid before? Well, you know, when you look at thyroid sufferers, thyroid sufferers really truly have in many times no place to go. Right. In the current healthcare model, they, they go in, they finally get diagnosed, and they get a single simple pill model where you take this replacement and then we'll check up with you every year. But that's not really enough for most of these patients. And then we have the natural medicine world, which is really simplifying these things as being an iodine deficiency issues or basic nutrient issue. But the key thing with with 90% of all known hypothyroid is that it was autoimmune. And one of the frustrations I had was um, I could, in my own clinical practice, see, see dramatic improvements of patients that were dealing with hypothyroid from doing dietary lifestyle, nutritional intervention to really just go after their autoimmunity instead of their thyroid. Right. And over the, over, uh, a uh, 10-year period, I was teaching this all over uh, the country and also internationally, and practitioners were learning the approach and getting effects, but I wasn't reaching enough people, and the, the goal of the book was to really get information out to the public, and I think that um, mission accomplished. accomplished. Yeah. Mission accomplished, and uh, many people uh, uh, really seemed to have been helped by it, and it was just a, a phenomenal, warm feeling. And this led me to the brain book because just like I saw a major uh, area of lack of hope for people that have thyroid disorders in the current healthcare model, there's also a lack of hope for people that have brain-related disorders. And uh, they also truly have nowhere to go because when you really look at the uh, outcomes of antidepressants and how long it takes for people to get diagnosed, they really end up worth thinking that there's nothing they can do. And we also have a major gap in between what uh, conventional healthcare practitioners and even alternative healthcare practitioners do for early signs of brain. And there's there's many things people can do beyond just like taking fish oils or something. You know? Yeah. You know what I think one of the biggest travesties in brain health today that most people have no clue is statin drugs. I, I think more people are taking those medications, you know, all for the sake of their heart health 
and the unexpected, the unintended consequence is more and more neurodegeneration, more and more mental decline, more and more Alzheimer's being induced by this. Are, are you seeing that? Well, yeah. You know, we have a we have a, we have a model where people have dysglycemia; they have abnormal dietary habits that have an impact on their lipid panels, especially triglycerides and other markers. And uh, we have a we have a healthcare model that, in a way, has become how do you want to call it? Uh, idiotic. Yeah. The single symptom, single pill model is not a respect for physiology, and you know people sometimes think that a scientific method method with one linear variables uh, to create an outcome from a group of select people compared to control is the way you determine healthcare. But that's uh, limited in the extent of how you limit it. So when when you look at people that go on a statin and there's evidence behind that it may reduce numbers, there's far-reaching effects of why the numbers were off in the first place and what are the stats themselves are the only variables, and even if they even have major impacts. And uh, I think you just wrote a book on that, didn't you? The I cholesterol. did. Yep, yeah. cholesterol clarity. So, I mean, I think it's great for people like you to get the information out there. But one thing is pretty clear, I mean, it's one of the most successful pharmacological agents ever produced, you know, by yeah. human species. And it's never going to go away. But at the end, end of the line, we have people that are seeking for answers, people that, which is great, is they no longer trust the, the whole white coat model. Yep. And uh, people are now thinking for themselves and getting information and making educated and informed decisions. And I think this is where, where a lot of educated people go. And I think uh, it's good to ask questions and criticize and really make decisions about your health. And I think when it comes to cholesterol, that's that's one where a lot of people have uh, have really uh, become conscious and aware of, which is which is great, and and it's good for you that you wrote your book, and people are starting to understand that more. Yeah, and we need more people like us who are willing to put the the truth out there because unfortunately, too many people, going back to the statin drug example, you know, take those in their later years, 50s, 60s, 70s, and then start to have cognitive decline, and it's just chalked up to oh, you're just getting older. So nobody thinks twice about the unintended consequence of those statins on their brain health. Yeah, and I think you, you make a great point. And, you know, one of the things that's very, very scary is there's a trend in cardiology where they're trying to get cholesterol levels below 100. Yeah. And, and remember, cholesterol levels should be... LDL uh, cholesterol. Most, yeah, no, total cholesterol. Oh, <laughs> total really? Cholesterol. Yeah, total cholesterol, which is, you know, usually around 180, 200. Yeah. There's a big movement right now, and I'm seeing this more and more in my practice, patients coming in. And usually, it's funny, is when they go see the top people, like at major universities, the so-called best cardiologists, yeah. they're actually getting these cholesterol levels down to 100. Oh. But, but your brain needs cholesterol. Yes. Your endocrine system needs cholesterol. And right. this, this idiotic model has consequences beyond one variable factor associated with, you know, potential cardiovascular risk, and uh, it's really, really sad to see that. But I think the whole model of just having one specialty where you only look through things through one filter right. uh, really creates a problem for overall appreciation of human human health and physiology, which is what we see. There's, and it's no surprise that uh, stands have been shown to do that. There's people in this audience right now that have an HDL that's over 100 all by themselves. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's yeah, craziness. I mean, 
Well, that's where functional medicine, I think, comes into play, which is why I'm really glad uh, you're one of those pioneers in this area. And you've now written the book literally on um, on brain health. And I'm looking at it. Uh, don't drop this on your foot, people, because it's 600 pages long. It's almost like a good calories, bad calories for, for your brain health. <laughs> but, um, well, you know, yeah. you know, interesting thing, you know, you know, I finished the book. I didn't know how thick it was going to come out. Yeah. So I actually got the first copy. Then when I got the first copy of the book, I said, oh, no, this is too big. It's going to intimidate people. But but then when I really thought about it, one of the things that makes that book so thick is I put a thousand references in there. Yes, and just like and, Gary did. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to have those references in there just so because people know that here here's what the information is really showing. You know, this is what the these are mechanisms that have been published by researchers and non-pharmaceutical applications, and I wanted that in there. And I actually had many more references to put in. There's a point you have to, right? You know, just say enough is enough. And also, I put a lot of personal case stories in there yep. for myself and other practitioners, just to really connect with how this really impacts people from a real life scenario. And you know, one of the lessons I learned from the thyroid book was that it, that. Uh, I needed to not make it so technical. Right. So there was a, there was a major attempt with this book to really simplify concepts, and, well, uh, and I think that's what we try to do with it. And your brain just works that way. I could tell from reading the book. You just you you like to be a little geeky about things, and and some of us in this audience definitely appreciate that. Uh, you know, when I was writing Cholesterol Clarity, I was thinking even more simplistic than even what you were thinking with this book. You just, you, yeah, it's it's a tricky balance between you want to keep the integrity of the science, which you do provide 100 pages uh, for people interested. 100 pages of this 600-page book is all references, so you can go look them up at your discretion. But uh, you did do a good job because I was reading on page 32 you gave the example of Ozzy Osbourne. He's a fascinating study in neurology. Whenever I watched his reality television show several years ago, I was amazed how he slurred his speech, needed to wear sunglasses indoors, and shuffled around. The years of drug abuse and life on the road had clearly taken their toll. However, once he got on stage in front of 50,000 people, all his finely tuned synaptic pathways for singing kicked back into gear, and he performed as if he were still in his 20s. Now, we can do better than Ozzy, not only perform well the tasks that matter to us, but also stay sharp and active well into old age. So it's those kinds of stories you kind of sprinkle throughout. Why is it my brain working to relate to people? Absolutely. And I, you know, when I wrote the thyroid book, I, I was criticized for putting case studies in there because of, of a gimmick of trying to be do marketing. But when the book was, uh, first copy was done, I, I handed it to several of my patients to read I asked them about the case studies, and they thought it was really, really important to just look at real-life issues. I mean, there's a point when you read and you just, just can't take any more information in, and unless you can get a connection to emotional reality, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And interestingly enough, when you look at the neurology of learning, um, we know that you can't learn to remember or you can't remember anything until it goes into your, to your temporal lobe. And you have to activate a part of your brain called the limbic system to, to make it uh, go into that area. So when you hear information and you read information, that's your frontal cortex, the front of your brain working. But unless it goes into the temporal lobe, the area right around your ear uh, level, uh, you won't be able to put it into long-term memory. And there's a pathway that's involved with that involves the hippocampus and limbic system, and that's activated when you have an emotional response. So, you know, just think about it. The times we have uh, events where we remember the most, they were very emotional events for us. So there was actually an attempt to have people learn the information more 
by getting a limbic response. So I sprinkled stories in there, uh, some of them were emotional in real life, just so that the information could also sink in better. Yeah, I love the one of the examples is a lady that's been on this podcast. She was inspired by you, uh, Dr. Johnny LeBay out of uh, San Diego, California, and she told her story. And yeah, it's those personal stories. I think people can relate. You know, you put stories in there and somebody says, hey, that's me. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and again, the stories plus evidence, because sometimes people say, well, if these are you know, anecdotal stories, they don't really mean anything. Well, we're not right. just saying anecdotal stories. We're no. supporting with evidence and how it's applied, and, and this is just uh, the argument that we have. At the end of the day, you know, uh, re- review of the literature, personal experience, and just logic makes sense to people's health decisions. You know? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, we don't have that in the healthcare model. Now, Datis, um Inflammation is a big part of what you talk about in your book, and I'm really happy to hear that. You know, inflammation, I think, is the, at the heart of just about every chronic health issue, whether you're talking about heart disease or um, or brain health issues, it really is a big key. What's inflaming people? Well, let me let me just add something to that. Obviously, we know diet, lifestyle, and environment are all inflammatory triggers, so um, just, just from environmental sake itself. We know that plastics, things like bisphenol A, we know that fire retardants that are now sprayed in all new furnitures, we know that formaldehyde, these things in the literature are very inflammatory, immune reactive. We know that uh, uh, potentially hybridization of certain proteins in foods and GMOs may be potentially inflammatory uh, to some sense. And we know that uh, we just have diets that are really rich in partially hydrogenated fats and inflammatory foods. The combination of all these things just increase people's total level of inflammation. Now, inflammation that is in the body systemically also impacts brain. But And I have a chapter in the book on neuroinflammation, and one of the things that's really interesting about brain inflammation is that bodily inflammation, I mean inflammation throughout the body, actually turns on brain inflammation, but the brain is very unique in how it responds to inflammation. So within the brain, there's two types of cells. There's neurons, which is involved with transmitting messages, but there's also cells called microglia. And these glial cells account for more than half the weight of the brain. So in a sense, more than half of the weight of the brain are actually immune cells, not really neurons. And these glial cells turn on from inflammation through diet, through nutrition, through lifestyle, but these glial cells don't really have an off switch. Yeah. So once they turn on, they stay on. And as as every inflammatory consequence has an impact on on the brain, the brain stays more and stays in an inflammatory state, which then accelerates how neurons die off because as these uh, glial cells get activated, they create a, a reaction chemically, and surrounding neurons start to degenerate away. So just just like eating a meal and, and getting tired and fatiguing, that insulin surge is very inflammatory to the glial cells of the brain. <laughs> I mean, gluten has been shown another major inflammatory trigger to brain. Mm. So just some people that are eating uh, grains all the time, uh, overeating, getting that crash after they eat, they're basically turning on their brain inflammatory consequence. So it's, it's really interesting. We also know there's studies now, and I've referenced a lot of those in the book, where gastrointestinal inflammation turns on brain. Uh, brain inflammation yeah. and we know that hormone deficiencies turn on brain inflammation and trauma to brain turns on head and uh, inflammation so uh, there's so many different mechanisms that turn on brain inflammation and you know when you look at the oper- so here's the thing when you look at the literature when you look at the evidence you try to find 
any type of approach to reduce brain inflammation. And there really is nothing in pharmacology that has been shown effectively to do it, with the exception of hormones for people that are hormone deficient. But there's tremendous amounts of literature on natural flavonoids. And certain flavonoids have specific abilities to dampen glial cells. So sometimes when people have brain inflammation, the key clinical symptom we see is just brain fog. Mm -hmm. And for brain fog, you know, if they just can't get a thought, that's clear, they can't find the words. And many people experience brain fog after they eat sometimes inflammatory foods. Wow. They just don't think clearly for a while. And uh, there's lots of papers now that have been published with different flavonoids that dampen glia, which can potentially, you know, decrease the inflammatory consequence people have. And... Uh, if people have been suffering from chronic joint pain, inflammation, gastrointestinal issues, they really should uh, consider attempts to de decrease their brain inflammation. I know for me personally, the first thing I do when I wake up is I just load up with my antioxidants and flavonoids uh, just as a routine part of my day. Wow. You know? and, and that's really cool. And, and I, I love in that what you were just saying you were talking about the connection between the gut and the brain, and I, I love that section where you uh, talked about identifying an impaired vagus nerve and the gut-brain axis, and this whole vagus nerve, um, and, and doctors, they, they totally ignore the gut-brain axis in patients with chronic health and gut uh, complaints. They just don't know about it, and that you can actually improve the vagus nerve. Can you tell us what the purpose of the vagus nerve is and some of these uh, interesting ways that you can strengthen it? Absolutely, but here's, let me give you a little background for, for some listeners. Okay, so what we have to realize is that the gastrointestinal tract uh, doesn't work on its own, that it needs neurological input to function. And the gastrointestinal tract has its own nervous system. They call it the enteric nervous system. And there's a pathway from the brainstem that connects the brain to the gut called the vagus. Vagus nuclei then becomes the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is a projection from the brainstem to the gastrointestinal tract. And when it gets activated, you get an autonomic effect. So things like blood flow happen to the intestines. You get to have gastrointestinal motility. You get to move your food. And you get to release enzymes. So when you look at the, the physiology of how you release enzymes and how you get blood flow to your intestines and how you have motility and move your food, those are all neurological mechanisms. Now, we know that when people's brains start to degenerate, they lose the ability to fire into their vagus. And as many times as people start to degenerate, they get constipation, they get uh, inability to make digestive enzymes, they can't get efficient blood flow to the gut, so they get leaky gut, intestinal permeability issues. And when they walk into, let's say, the uh, conventional healthcare system, they could totally get ignored. When they walk into the alternative healthcare system, they're going to be diagnosed with yeast overgrowth syndromes or leaky gut or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And those things all exist, but they exist secondary to the brain not being efficient. So in that whole chapter between the brain gut axis, we talk about uh, the importance of the vagus. And, 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 you know, in examination, you can look at the palate and see if it moves and you can listen to the abdomen. These are all things that have been done in the functional neurology model. And, uh, you can give people applications. So one of the things like we talk about in the book is gargling. Gargling activates the muscles in the back of the throat. That activates the vagus. Cool. You have uh, effects in the gut as well. Salt water and or just plain of, water? Just plain water. Wow. Just as long as you gargle, you get those, 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 those palate muscles firing, and as you fire those palate <laughs> muscles, you, you, you activate the vagus. Yeah. Right. And there's people that have had uh, you know, chronic health gastrointestinal problems 
because the brain's unhealthy, and once you start to activate pathways, you get things to work. Just like, for example, if your arm was uh, in a cast and it atrophied, you'd have to move it to get it to work again. <laughs> well, there's people who have had loss of activation to their vagus because the brain isn't working well, and uh, they need to activate it to get some function back. So there is truly a brain-gut access, and uh, it goes both ways. It goes from brain to gut and then from gut back to brain. Hmm. In the literature, this is well-known. I mean, the brain-gut access is not a, a term I've made up. It's, a, it's in the scientific uh, literature. Right. The singing loudly one was the one I was happy about. <laughs> yeah, and those are all the strategies to activate uh, the vagus. You know, when you look at brain health, there's two parts to it. You have to stimulate the brain by actually activating it, and then you have to create a chemical environment where it's healthy. And the combination of both those things together have the, the best impact on, on brain health. So simply, without getting into details, just physical exercise has profound impacts on brain. <laughs> It activates it, it gets blood flows to brain. And one of the things they recently have found is that when you exercise, you actually have release of neurons, what's called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. Yeah. And BDNF keeps your neurons connected together and allows things to happen. There is no drug that we know about that changes BDNF. There is no nutrient that's been shown to change BDNF levels. Just, just physical exercise, activity of any kind. People that are failing in mathematics and can't remember numbers, they, they need to do math. People that have poor balance, they need to work on their balance because the consequences of those are far-reaching beyond just, just beyond the poor balance or being poor at math, you know? And many times people that have brain-related issues, they call it personality issues. I'm just bad at math. It's just my personality. Mm. No, you're bad at math because your left frontal cortex is not able to engage. Right. I just have bad balance. I have always had it. Well, you have bad balance because your cerebellum doesn't work you know, or is not efficient. So these are things that typically happen with brain-related issues. People blame it on personality, people blame it on aging, but uh, there's things that can be done about those, and, and that's what I try to discuss in the book. Well, and, and all these kind of things we were talking about with the, the vagus nerve, uh, another one, gag reflexes, and you, uh, you liken it to doing push-ups for the vagus uh, compared to gargling and singing loudly as doing sprints. I love kind of that that imagery of exercise because that's going to help people understand the why. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, sometimes you have to specifically activate pathways that make your gut move. And uh, I'll have patients sometimes get a box of tongue blades and just do a gag reflex, not on the back of their throat so they injure it, but just pushing down on their tongue. And they push down on their tongue, and that makes that, uh, that, vagus, uh, that vagus nerve fire. And when that fires, it's like doing a bicep curl. So if you have weak biceps, you got to do bicep curls. If you have a weak vagus, you got to start activating that pathway. And uh, it's just one of the strategies we use with, with, with people who have chronic, uh, chronic imbalances. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the key thing, I think, with I think many people I got feedback with the brain book. It's not the same stuff regurgitated all over again. You know, it's not just like, hey, you need neurotransmitters, take, take uh, you know, this amino acid and take some fish oils. And I mean, this is... Uh, some, some very important information, I think, that's never been presented in, in the books before. And I think, that's right. uh, yeah. And from a, micro, from a micronutrient yeah. perspective, you know, this yeah. goes well beyond just food and macronutrients. From a micronutrient perspective, I mean, there's so many key brain health uh, nutrients that people just aren't getting in their diet because they're not eating certain foods that would give them those key brain health nutrients. Um, nutrients. What what are some of those things? Well, let me kind of answer that in a different way, if you don't okay, mind. Sure. Um, 
I'm not a big believer in the micronutrient model as the answer to care. And and let me explain what I mean by that. In my practice, every single chronic patient I see comes in with bagfuls of supplements. And I mean bagfuls of supplements. Yeah. Okay. So I don't clinically in my world see patients that just don't have a single nutrient. (laughs) Because when I see them, they've spent hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars per month, just trying to take any new supplement to feel better. Right. Okay. So I think what I see as a clinician and what I try to address in the book is before trying to find a single micronutrient deficiency, what is the mechanism? What is the physiological mechanism that causes the person's brain to decline? So maybe it's neuroinflammation. Maybe it's abnormal blood sugar dietary habits. Maybe it's neurological autoimmunity. Maybe it's gluten sensitivity. So I think um, for, for a lot of people, when they start to read books about nutrition or other things, they almost apply the same pharmaceutical model, single symptom, single drug. They want single symptom, single nutrient. But that's inefficient for many people. And it's really more important to understand what mechanisms are involved. So what I try to do in the, the brain book is in the beginning of each chapter, I talk about symptoms associated with a certain, certain uh, mechanism instead of symptoms associated with a certain nutrient deficiency. So at the end of the day, uh, it's hard for me to answer a question of what micronutrients you would need because I truly don't practice that model. My model is what's the mechanism and how do I use micronutrients or diet and lifestyle to impact that mechanism. And that's kind of where I I kind of uh, approach things and that's that's, that's the way I think. Absolutely. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good thing, and uh, and I know a big part of what you talk about here is the role fat plays in brain health, and you know, we've been seeing a lot more in recent years of these kind of madmen that go out there and do really dastardly things, um, yeah. and, and you can't help but wonder, is that an unintended consequence of a maybe a low-fat diet on our culture? Well, again, I think... We do have a low-fat culture, and I think people are, our diet foods are very, very popular, you know. But the brain does need fat. The brain needs essential fatty acids and fatty fishes and avocados, and it does need nuts and it does need seeds. And uh, and I think that over that it's one of the things that uh, is a major problem. There's without without any question countless papers on the role of how important essential fatty acids are to the brain. And I think when people start to become fat phobic and start to deprive themselves of of things uh, that have, have healthy fats in them, then we have a major, major, major problem. And we see that with the uh, spectrum of children all the way up to seniors with all types of varied developmental disorders and neurological disorders. So, you know, uh, it's good to have fats in your diet, yeah. and uh, we need, but we need the good fats. I mean, we don't want the partially hydrogenated and processed fats. We need really good fats, you know. So, um, I, I think most people are, are, you know, more aware of that, but uh, not enough. Yeah, well, we're working on that message, my friend. <laughs> we good hammer that one. You. Yeah, we hammer that one pretty hard here. Well, speaking of uh, a message that needs to be hammered hard, uh, I'm glad that you put in here about Cyrex Labs running the food sensitivity panel, uh, because I don't think enough people realize that the foods that they're sensitive to, they're just eating and saying, well, I'm okay, and yet they're not okay, and you can't really know until you test for this. Can you share how you use this in your clinical practice? Well, one of the things we know is, and I talk about gluten sensitivity testing and the research and the mechanisms, 
many people have, for example, food sensitivities, and in particular what seems to have a profound impact on brain is gluten sensitivity. And gluten is is one of these things where they've actually found now in studies that there's the, what they call cross-reactivity, that the molecular structure of gluten is similar enough to what's called uh, synapsin. Synapsin is a key uh, protein structure in neurons that helps keep the integrity of the structure. Mm-hmm. And also to GAD, which is a major enzyme for brain, and also to cerebellum tissue. So what they're finding is they're finding that gluten is so similar in structure to to, to uh, uh, the amino acid sequence of, of neurological tissue, that there's a, there's a lot of inflammatory cross-reactivity responses that take place. And it doesn't have to be celiac disease. It just has to be gluten sensitivity. And in my book, I talk about how there's still a uh, gap between what's being published and what practitioners think. There's practitioners that think that you still have to have full-blown celiac disease performed by gastrointestinal biopsy to have brain-related issues. And research is showing you don't. And uh, we know that many people that have gluten sensitivity also have um, cross-reactivity with other fruits. So let me explain, because this is really, really critical. Cross-reactivity is a very, very important symbol. It's not simply food sensitivity. Food sensitivity is where you have just an antibody against something. Cross-reactivity is where you have a protein structure which has uh, three to four amino acids in an identical sequence with each other. And when you have cross-reactivity, the immune system will react against that protein as if something else was there as well. So, for example, people eat gluten, and they cross-react also against neurological tissue. But there's also a cross-reaction between gluten and other foods, such as sesame. Sesame has been shown to cross-react with gluten. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rice has been shown to cross-react with gluten now. So people sometimes go on a gluten-free diet, and they eat rice and sesame, and they have these adverse reactions. And they don't understand it because they're supposed to be gluten-free or if they go on a gluten-free diet, they still don't feel better. But in fact, the lab tests show they have that. So in, in, the, in the book, I try to discuss some of those things. I just recently worked with one of my mentors, Dr. Arista Vigdani, and um, we published a paper. We got acceptance for publishing paper, and we looked at uh, the random population, and we looked at glute, uh, gluten sensitivity and dairy sensitivity. We found in 20% of the random U.S. population, okay? Mm-hmm. Of that 20%, we found 10% of them had neurological autoimmunity lab markers. Wow. So this, it's a serious issue, and it's not associated with celiac disease. Hmm. Wow. And, and yet how many people are just totally oblivious to that? Everybody. <sighs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. not everybody, but you know what I mean? I mean, not a, there's too, too many people that are oblivious to that. And again, again, things are changing. Information is going out there. People are learning more. But food has profound impacts on 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 our brain health. Yeah. But what's most scary about food is that it's profound linked to neurological autoimmunity, where certain foods can trigger the immune system to attack its own brain. Yeah. And and, and ironically. It's some of the very foods we're being told as a society to eat more of for our health. Exactly. Especially milk and wheat. Yeah. The combination of those two things can be devastating. And you wow. know, it doesn't, if, you, if you were a healthcare practitioner and you work with autistic children, or you just happen to hang, hang out in an autistic center for a day, yeah. you talk to parents, they would tell you unquestionably without doubt in their, in their voice that when they took the kids off there in 
and gluten, there was dramatic changes in the in child's performance wow. it's across the globe. It's not just here. And I think for a lot of people, it, it's a real issue. And, you know, if you look at the school lunch requirements today, all school lunches provided by government funding, state funding, have to have gluten and dairy in there. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a reader recently, uh, Dr. Karazi, and you're going you're gonna to be shocked by this, but uh, they talked about how their five-year-old came home and said, Mommy, Mommy, guess what they served for breakfast at school today? And, hold on to your hats here. A Twix bar. Because oh the God. graham cracker qualified as a grain in their diet, and they had run out of the graham crackers. Well, it's got graham cracker in it, so therefore it's an equivalency to the graham cracker. <laughs> I know. It's just, it's just uh, it's crazy. <sighs> yeah. Well, we can literally talk for hours about all the great information you put in Why Isn't My Brain Working? But I have one more concept I had never seen before. That's always a good thing because I've interviewed hundreds of people on this show. Um, I've heard of the leaky gut, but you put in here about the leaky brain. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So, so the gastrointestinal tract has a barrier system, and the brain has a barrier system. We basically have four barrier systems in our body. Our skin, which is the most obvious one. Yeah. We have well, our gastrointestinal tract. We have a lung barrier system, and we have a blood-brain barrier system. And the blood-brain barrier is breached. And uh, many things have been published in the literature that cause breach of blood-brain barriers. One interesting uh, paper that was published recently found we have that PCBs that are found in human water supplies can break down blood-brain barriers in animals, meaning that when they equate the two, they can see that we may even have breakdown of a blood-brain barrier from just environmental things in our water supply. Wow. Um, we know stress breaks down the blood-brain barrier very, very quickly. People that are in chronic stress, they, they have a breach in their blood-brain barrier. And the goal of the blood-brain barrier is to keep particles out. But when the blood-brain barrier gets breached, you can have in, you can have the proteins and particles and different pathogens that get into the brain. So here's an example. We all have elevated levels of environmental toxins. There's no question about it. If any one of us was to go through and do different types of testing, we'd have, all of us would have high levels of either lead or mercury or arsenic or other types of things. That's just, it's just known as a fact, okay? Mm-hmm. But the key concern is, do they actually get into the brain? Now, if you have elevated levels of those compounds, because we all do, you may not have any issues with it, but if you lose the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, now those types of things can enter your brain. And when they enter the brain, they turn on the glia and they create inflammatory reactions. So now there's different models being published in, in the research model of how breakdown of blood-brain barrier is an initial trigger for development of neurological autoimmunity, things like multiple sclerosis and other types of conditions. And they're also now linking that Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease may have an autoimmune component. So you're kind of seeing this link between, you know, your blood-brain barrier breaks down and then you have potential risk for your immune system to attack your own brain. And then those things can lead into autoimmune disease like MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, different types of dementias or unknown named conditions. Right. You know? So it becomes uh, very, very interesting. So I think the blood-brain barrier is going to um, be a very popular area as time comes on. In the literature, there's, there's an explosion of it. They were able to identify blood-brain barrier protein several years ago. That had led to a lot of different research studies they can do in laboratory settings. And uh, we can start to test for serum markers that show up when the blood-brain barrier breaks down. 
So there's going to be a lot more investigation and work with it as time goes on, but it is a real, real issue. Just like leaky gut is important, uh, leaky brain is important too. Wow. His name is Dr. Datis Karazian. The name of his brand new book, Why Isn't My Brain Working? A Revolutionary Understanding of Brain Decline and Effective Strategies to Recover Your Brain's Health. And we didn't even cover 1% of 1% of this book, guys. You've got to pick up a copy of it. It's really fantastic. He's got a website for it, brainhealthbook.com. And once you're there, He's got some uh, sneak peek of parts of the book. He's got different uh, blog posts he's written on this subject. Patient stories are listed there, more about Dr. Karazian and more. So be sure to check out brainhealthbook.com. Well, Dr. Karazian, thanks so much for joining us again here today on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. Thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have an LLVLC Show Classic episode with Dr. Keith Runyon. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc.